Welcome to I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye, the podcast where we're learning to love ourselves instead of booze. Why did I have to go through 27 years of mental illness and addiction and alcoholism before I got the help I needed? But the more I got sober, the more I read on my mental illness, the more I read about recovery and sobriety, the more I worked the steps, the more I started living the steps in my daily life, the more I started having faith. I finally realized that those 27 years didn't happen to me. They happened for me. They happened for me to realize how special this gift of life is that we have. Today, my guest is Tim Lodgen. He's 46 years old and he lives in Baltimore, Maryland. He's a former United States Marine. I'm the son of a Marine, so I can say Semper Fi. He's a mixed martial artist fighter and a junior Olympic boxer. He has survived a 27 year long battle with bipolar disorder, alcohol, drug addiction, and multiple suicide attempts. And he shares his story of strength, courage, and hope to those who are still suffering, know that they're not alone, and in the hopes that they know there's help out there for them and that we can recover to live the life we've always had waiting for us. And his hope is the same as mine, uh, which is if we can help one person, then this episode will absolutely be worth it because every life is of eternal value. And uh, so, Tim, thanks so much for joining me and my new uh, service dog, Spruce. I normally have my owl with me. His name is Owl K. Halfrey. He's my uh, garden owl. And I have him next to me in the studio. I even have a mic for him and everything. It's kind of goofy, but that's who I am. And so now I got my co-host is Spruce, uh, my 14-month-old Black Lab PTSD service dog who I just met a couple days ago, and he is currently taking a nap because we had a, a good day of training today. So anyway, with all that said, welcome, Tim, and please tell us about your story, and I'm so excited to have you here. I appreciate you having me, and um, you know, I, thank you for having a podcast to where I can share my story to reach people because without people like you that have podcasts, my story wouldn't be heard other than going to my local meetings, and um, which is great. Yeah. But... And, and they used the, 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 the term anonymous, okay? And I'm going to put this out there. I, I got some shit at yeah. my meeting for saying I go, on, I go on podcasts and I share my story. Yeah. And, you know, I've reached people all over the world. And an old timer, mm-hmm. she, she came up to me and she said, that's a shame. You shouldn't be sharing your story. Mm-hmm. You know, we're supposed to only be conclusive to our meeting. And I looked at her and I said, I, I understand what you're saying, but I don't mention anybody in my meetings. I don't mention um, exactly um, you know, specific people's names. I don't mention your stories. I tell my story. Yeah. And I'm anonymous a- as far as um, just that goes. I don't mention my group. I don't mention the people in them. I don't mention their stories. Yeah. But we can't stay anonymous. We have to share. We drank out loud. We drank in front of everybody. We drugged in front of everybody. So why can't we recover out loud and share our stories to as many people as possible? There are so many people out there that believe that they're alone, that their pain that they're going through is theirs alone, that nobody could possibly understand what they're going through. They're ashamed. They're depressed. They're embarrassed. And the more that I share, the more people will understand that they're not alone. And there's more people out there like us and and we can help each other. So that anonymous thing, you know, I just... I, I respect their traditions. I respect the 12 steps, but for yeah. me, I need to reach as many people as possible. You know, um, you know, I grew up in a, in a fairly normal family. My, my father retired after 37 years as a police officer um, growing up with, it's kind of not normal, but my mom was actually a professional bodybuilder in the eighties when I grew up. Oh, cool. But I say that because there was no drugs, no alcohol in my house. 
There, there was no liquor in the cabinet. There was no beer in the refrigerator. There was no drugs around. Um, I've seen my mom maybe drink five beers in her entire life. Like I swear to God. And she's 73. Um, my father, he would have an occasional drink at a family get together or a holiday party. I've never seen him drunk. Um, it just wasn't around me at that time. But my father and mother did get a divorce when I was in first grade. I was six years old. And I, it, it affected me throughout my adulthood up until I got into rehab. Um, I have a brother who's almost 11 years older than me. And as a child at six years old, and my brother's almost 17 going into um, senior year, and I'm just starting first grade, I literally thought, I was the reason my parents divorced. Yeah. Um, I, I would tell myself, well, well, why why did he stick around so long for my older brother, but he left me in first grade? Mm -hmm. You know, was I not a good boy? Did I not listen? Did I not clean my room? Did I not bring home good grades? Like, why would he leave me as a child, but he waited for my brother to basically almost be graduated out of high school? So I really thought I was the problem. And what kind of solidified that was you know my, my father when he left he would call and say hey hey buddy um pack your bags i'm coming to pick you up for the weekend we'll go hang out and do some stuff and i'd pack my bags i'd wait at the front door two hours go by then the phone would ring hey i'm sorry something came up i can't pick you up and that happened so many times that when my mom told me hey go pack your bags your father's coming to get you i would just i wouldn't even pack anymore so for me i really thought he wanted nothing to do with me growing up mm. My mom did the best she could. She she went out and she worked three jobs. She put herself through college, got her master's degree, and ultimately ended up becoming a vice president of this company and becoming very wealthy and did very good for herself. And she put me in sports to keep me occupied. So all through elementary school, up into uh, middle school, I played baseball. I was a pitcher. Then I got into football. I was a running back in football. Um, during that time, I picked up skateboarding. And I became a very, very good at skateboarding. I was, I was sponsored here by local companies here in Baltimore. I actually grew up with Brandon Novak from Jackass. Oh, wow. And um, he lived like two streets over from me. We would skateboard all the time. And he knew a bunch of big people, um, Bucky Lassick, Tony Hawk. And when Bucky would come into town, he would call me. I could be able to go skate with Bucky a couple of times. It was really cool. I, I, it was a really good group of people to be hanging around. And... Um, I started doing I started doing boxing in um, eighth grade, and I became very good at boxing. I got into Junior Olympics. I came in third place in the Junior Olympics, got a bronze medal. Um, I won Golden Gloves champions um, for my state here in Maryland. And then um, I high school came. Still no drugs, no alcohol. I, I was in the sports. I, I, I wanted nothing to do with that. But ninth grade came, and a buddy of mine had welcome to high school freshman party and everybody was going so i was like you know what i'm gonna go to the party and have some fun and meet some other people from different middle schools because we're all going to the same high school so i go there and that was the first time i ever tried alcohol and uh, a bunch of seniors got uh colt 45 and um slits slits blue or slits, slits. Pepper, uh, yeah, slits, yeah. <laughs> both, both malt, malt, malt liquor and i got so sick man like uh, the next day my mom picked me up from this from this guy's house and she's like, you drank alcohol last night, didn't you? I'm like, yeah. She's like, well, I'm not going to punish you. The rest of your weekend is ruined. I hope you, hope you learn your lesson. Yeah. But we're having a cookout today, and I need 50 ears of corn shucks. So you're going to go in the basement. 
here's a bag for the corn and here's a bag for you to throw up. You're going to shuck all 50 ears of these corn and you can spend the rest of the basement downstairs on the couch getting sick. And that pretty much was my punishment. <laughs> oh, wow. But that, that that did it though. Like I, I was like, I'm no more drinking. I'm never, I'm never drinking again. And I made it all through high school up until my senior year without drinking and drugging. The summer before senior year, um, my grades weren't that good. I wasn't getting into college. And a lot of people that I knew were getting into some heavy, heavy drugs. And I was like, I don't want to go down that road. So I joined the Marine Corps the summer before uh, 12th grade. So I was in a delayed entry program. Yeah. So twice a month, I'd go down to the recruiter's office. We'd go running. I'd do pull-up, push-ups, get everything kind of ready for that for the following year. But senior year, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out and have some fun and go to some parties. Cause at the end of the year, you know, shit's going to get real. I'm going in the military. Yeah. Let me have some fun and get it out of my system. So I started, I started going to parties and having some fun and I started drinking alcohol. And when I started drinking alcohol, I noticed my, my, my guard went down and I became the guy that, well, what else is at this party? Let me try smoking some pot. You know, that was pretty cool. Try to smoke some pot. Oh shit! What's that? We got some painkillers. I'll try some of that. I've never done them before. Started started doing painkillers. Oh, what are those? Mushrooms? Let me try some of that. I'll eat some mushrooms. Oh, you got some LSD? I've never tripped before. Let me start tripping. Oh, what's that? PCP? Yeah, that sounds good. Let me try some of that. So I tried a little bit of everything. Now, thank God, my senior year, um, cocaine and heroin were not abundant in my little community, my town where I live. Yeah, but if they were there. I probably would have tried them, which yeah. I, I thank the God they want. But I tried everything else that was at a party. Um, so my whole senior year was was I was drinking on the weekends and doing drugs. And that would lead over sometimes to Monday and a Tuesday. And then I'd find myself cutting class and, and leaving school early and going hang out with the guys, going to get high and riding through the park and drinking. So my weekends poured over to the weekdays. And again, for me, I was just like, this is a phase. I go into the military at the yeah. end of school and I'm just having fun and getting it out. Yeah. So I, I, I go into boot camp in September and the drug stopped, 100% the drug stopped. And obviously there was no drinking in boot camp. But when I got out of boot camp and I got stationed at Camp June, actually I went to Camp Geiger for my MOS training. Um, once we got to Camp Geiger, when we got done training for the day at 4 p.m., a bunch of us would leave the base and go to the strip clubs, go to the bars, yeah. and they would serve us. You know, their motto outside of the outside of the military <laughs> base was, if you're old enough to take a bullet, you're old enough to have a cold beer. Right. So they would serve us no problem. Their only stipulation was don't stand there with a beer in your hand in case an authority figure walks in. Yeah. You can order your alcohol, drink it, but you have to sit it back down at the table. And yeah. when you want to drink it again, pick it up or put it back down. But other than that, they would serve us. Yeah. And we would see our sergeants drinking and partying, having a good time. And they would just simply say, don't get in trouble. Don't don't get in a fight. Don't get locked up. Make sure your ass is up at 3.30 a.m. and that formation at 4 a.m. ready to go. But there was no deterrent as far as you guys shouldn't be out here drinking. Yeah. So as 18-year-old guy, 18-year-old young men, if not boys, because I'm looking back, you know, we were, ch we were children at 18. Yeah. We're looking up to these older guys and kind of thinking, well, this is what we do. You know, we, we train hard. We party hard. And it was kind of like a badge of honor. See how much shit face we could get. And still get up at 3.30 in the morning and still go running our three miles every day and, and doing our training and do it all over again. So that went on pretty much my entire uh, two and a half 
year enlistment in the Marine Corps. I only did two and a half out of four. The late, late of 95, my unit, uh, we went to Somalia for six months. Now, it wasn't during wartime, so I'm not a combat veteran. We went there for training and for peacekeeping, mm-hmm. but I did get to see the ramifications of what war had done to a country and its yeah. people. And at that time, it didn't seem like it affected me. You know, this is just what we're doing. This is what we're here for. Yeah. But when we came back, I had three months left. Not, well, not in my enlistment. I had a year and a half left. But when I came back, it did affect me. I, um, I started getting depressed. I started drinking a lot more. I um, started missing formation. And um, I broke my ankle. So I couldn't train. I couldn't do what I was supposed to do. And they came with, came at me with, well, um, you severely broke your ankle. You're going to need surgery. Um, and we don't think you can continue to do your MOS. I was at 0311 Infantry. Yeah. And I, I was like, I, I don't want to do anything else. I joined yeah. to be an infantryman. Well, you have two options. You can have surgery and you can change your MOS. Um, or you don't have to have surgery and you can get out with an honorable discharge. And you've accrued almost two years of a Montgomery GI Bill. So you can get out like that. And I said, you know what? That, that I'm getting out. And I came home, I was 21. And, um, you know, the first month was kind of great, man. It was like, yeah. shit, I don't got to get up at 3.30 anymore. I don't yeah. have to shave every day. I don't have to have my hair cut high and tight. I don't have to wear my uniform. And um, the first month was kind of a, a decompression period. Um, I was still drinking. And now I started smoking pot again because now I don't have any drug tests. So I'm like, right. I was really kind of just like, ah, like a release. The second month I was home, I kind of got that oh shit back. Um, I'm back living in my mom's house. I got to get a job. I got to get a vehicle, at least paying my mom some kind of money for rent, for food and electric. And then the third month came and I got severely depressed. I stopped showering. I stopped shaving. I wouldn't leave my bedroom. I was drinking every day. I was smoking pie. And now I started taking some painkillers um, from I got from my buddies. And, um, and I found myself one day in my bedroom just not knowing what I'm doing with my life. I lost my identity. You know, I, I was a Marine. Now I'm a piece of shit, 21 year old living in my mom's house with no job, no car and no direction in life. No purpose is how I felt. Yeah. And um, I, I go into my stepfather's armoire one day and I grab his, his gun and I sit it on my lap and I'm looking at it. And thank God I had the right mind to, to call my girlfriend at the time. And I said, Hey, something's not right. I'm sitting here looking at my stepdad's gun on my lap and I'm contemplating news. I don't know what to do. And luckily she was able to go within five minutes. She took the gun from me, put it back in the armoire. And when my mother came home that evening, I told her, I said, something's, something's not right. Um, I, I don't feel normal. Something's not right. I didn't tell her I had my stepdad's gun in my lap. She would have freaked out and had me committed to a hospital. And, and I wasn't trying to do all that. But yeah. what she did do was she got me appointments with doctors. I got in to talk to doctors that, that following week. And they diagnosed me with bipolar disorder, manic depressant. Now in 95, you know, PTSD was not really a thing. Right. Um, we do know that the government knows that, you know, after you go through traumatic incidences or, or you get deployed to a, another country and you see things that they sure as shit know that we go through stuff. But as you know, when, when you get discharged, here's your papers, here's your um, phone number to your local VA in your state. Good luck. Have a good time. And that's pretty much it. You're, they're yeah. done with you. But I did go in to get the doctors and their first thing was, well, we need to put you on medicine. Now, I want to say this. If you go to a doctor for a mental illness and they put you on medicine, 
please be honest with your doctors. I was not honest with them. I didn't tell them I was drinking every day. I was smoking pot and I was taking pain pills whenever I could get my hands on them. So the medicines that they put me on were not working. So when I would go back, you know, 30, 60, 90 days, whatever the doctor would have me come back for for a checkup, they would ask me, how's the medicine working? And I would say, it's not working. I, I still feel the same. I'm still depressed. I still have my manic episodes where I can't sleep for days, or I still have my really, really bad depression where I don't get out of my bed for two or three days. And I, I don't shave. I don't shower. I want nothing to, like, I have no energy to do anything. I don't eat. And their solution was, let's put you on these medicines. Yeah. Let's up the milligrams. Let's up, up, up the dosages. And the whole time, they were never going to work because I had alcohol and drugs in my system. Mm. But I wasn't going to admit that because that right. possibly couldn't be the problem. It had to be the medicines that they were putting me on, not my drug and alcohol addiction. Yeah. So th- that lasted, honestly, from the age of 21 all the way up until the age of 44 until I got into rehab. On and off medicines, milligrams, dosages, cocktails, all different types of medicines. And um, it affected my jobs. From the age of 21 up until the age of 35, I went through 46 employments. Yeah. I couldn't hold a job. 30 days, 60 days, six months. I think nine months was the longest I was I was actually able to hold an employment. It was all due to my mental illness and my, my addiction. I just, I wouldn't want to get off of work. I would call out sick. And then my anxiety would kick in and, oh my God, they're talking about me at work. I'm not going back. Screw that place. I'm I'm just not going to show my face anymore. And I would just do the no no show, no call and just simply go on in the paper and look for another job and get another job. Yeah. Um, Now, God bless my wife. She put up with it for a very, very long time because she did know I was going through mental illness. And um, the addiction part at that point was not being addressed. She knew I was drinking every day, but it wasn't out of control. Right. And I, I would say in parentheses because um, yeah. the house was still in order. I right. would still get jobs. I was still paying bills. It wasn't on a consistent basis, but I was still kind of maintaining a normal life at that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, at 32, I, I, I lost probably my uh, 35th job at that point. And my wife's like, what's going on? What are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I just... I miss sports. I miss competing. I miss feeling like I'm worth something. Like I just, I need something else in my life. I want to go back to competitive sports. And she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I really want to do mixed martial arts. I was, it's, it's a big thing now. I think it'd be good for me mentally and physically. And she said, you know what? I'll, you're collecting unemployment now. The bills are paid. I'll give you one year. If you can go in and get training and get some fights and start making some money, then you can do it. But after one year, if, if nothing has come of this, you have to let it go and, and go back to work and we have to take care of our family. So she gave me one year. Within six months, I, I got a lot of training. I was able to pick up my first fight. And that one year ended up lasting three years. Um, I had um, up to t- eight fights and I wasn't making that much money. Um, it was only about $1,500 a fight because they were all up down the East Coast. But um I felt good about myself. I was training and there was nothing that I've ever taken drug or alcohol wise that ever has matched that feeling of coming out of the locker room with 3000 people at an auditorium, the music going, the smoke, the lights, and they're yelling your name. That euphoria that you go through 
is has never been matched by a drug or alcohol that I've ever taken in my life. It yeah. was it was a drug within itself. Yeah. Um, but my last fight was at Harris Casino in, in Philadelphia. It was televised. There were sponsors there. It was a big deal. And I ended up tearing my rotator cuff in that fight. Uh. And I get back to the locker room, and I can't put my shirt on. I can't lift my right arm. So my trainer had to help me put my shirt on. And I go back out to the casino, and I had 35 friends and family there. It was a big group that night. And my wife hands me a beer. And even though I'm left-handed, I do everything with my right hand. And I grabbed the beer with my left hand. And she said, why didn't you grab it with your right hand? I'm like, I can't lift my arm. And she's like, are you kidding me? I said, no, I did something. And she's like, that's it. You're done. You're 35. You, you had three years. You're done. You have to go to the doctor and see what's going on. Yeah. So I go to the doctor that week. And sure as shit, I, I tore my labrum in three places. And I had oh. to have emergency surgery oh. on my rotator cuff. Well, that started a four and a half year long opioid addiction to mm-hmm. pain pills prescribed to me by my doctor and they they didn't have in place what they have in now which i think is great i could just literally go to my family doctor and say hey um this this isn't working i need something stronger and after 30 days you know they they started me on hydrocodones and he was like how does that how's that working for you i'm like it's still not taking the pain away. You know, I'm taking them, but it's not taking the pain away. Okay, well, let, let's switch you to Percocets and we'll up the dosage to 10, 10 milligrams. That should help you out. And I'd go back after 30 or 60 days, whatever the refill was, and to, for the uh, checkup, how you doing? Well, I like the Percocets, but they, they mess my stomach up. I, it would cramp me up. It would really mess up my stomach. And he's like, okay, we're, we're just going to uh, switch you and put you on Oxycontins. Yeah. And they, they should be the best for you. And uh, that lasted for four years, Oxycontin, 20 milligrams. And I would simply just go back every 30 or 60 days, get my refill with no, no fail. Um, I would just simply fill out a little checklist. What's still hurting? How's it not helping you? And he would just fill my prescription. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I was drinking 12 to 18 beers a day. Yeah. My, my alcohol consumption didn't slow down whatsoever. Okay. And I was smoking pot, which I mentioned that, but it, Pot to me really isn't a big deal, yeah. but um, it's part of my story because it wasn't allowing the medicines that the doctors would give me, even though I wasn't taking them as prescribed, um, they weren't working. And uh, I would take my bipolar medicine for 30, 60 days and then just stop taking them and say, I don't need them, you know, and that was my, my because I had my pain pills and my alcohol. That was, so, that was working, that yeah. was working good for me. Yeah. I don't need any psychiatric medicine because I got my own medicine and yeah. it works good for me. And, you know, I wasn't taking the pain pills like I, I was supposed to one every four hours. I was taking two and three every four hours. And I was running through my prescription two weeks before I would get them refilled. So ultimately, I would have to start calling my buddies and have them pick me up pills from the street to hold me over till I went back to my doctor to get my refill. And it was a repetitive cycle, man. And it was it was really starting to drain on me. I, I got scared. Uh, I said, this is how people die. I'm taking 8 to 10, 20 milligram oxys a day. I'm drinking 12 packs, sometimes 18 beers a day. I'm going to go to sleep one night and not wake up tomorrow because this, this is how people die. Yeah. And... I told myself, you know, my mental illness stepped in and was like, well, if you're going to die, you might as well just do it your damn self because who wants to die in their sleep? So I, I reach over and grab my pill bottle, on my armoire, I mean, on my, on my dresser. And I open it and, and I counted. There was at 18 Oxycontins in my hand. Wow. And I took all, all 18 of them 
And I went out into my living room and I cracked open a 12 pack and I drank all 12 of them within like 45 minutes. I just sat there and guzzled them. And I went into my bedroom and I laid down and I, I remember saying, please, God, don't let me wake up. I can't stop. And I don't want to live this way anymore. I just want the pain to stop. Yeah. And I passed out and I woke up the next day and I still don't know how or why, wow. Wow. but I got up that next morning and I went to the bathroom and my refill was sitting there on the counter of the bathroom. And I opened up the bottle and I pour the entire refill down the toilet. And I remember looking in the mirror and telling myself, this is going to get bad, but remember this feeling for the rest of your life. We never want to go through this. And for the next 10 days, I was probably the sickest I think I've ever been in my entire life. I, I can't even um, imagine. Yeah. It, it, um, the night terrors, the insomnia, the, the jitters, the panic attacks, the anxiety, the fever, the throwing up, the going to the bathroom, the whole gambit of coming off of opioids after four years. But every morning, I told myself, looking in the mirror behind tears and snot and throwing up, remember this feeling. We're never doing this again. I was ultimately able to stop taking pain, pain kills on my own. So I, I got in my truck one day and I'm like, I'm going to go for a ride and just clear my damn head. I just need some space. So I get in my truck and I go drive through this beautiful reservoir we have out here that people go hiking and biking and, and they picnic and walk their dogs and go fishing. And I'm driving through the reservoir and I'm banging on the steering wheel and I'm yelling at the sky, you know, why am I here? What's my purpose? You know, I, I don't understand why I lived. Like, where's my next direction? Where am I going in life? What's what's ahead of me? And I get around to this tree where in 1996, uh, my best friend lost control of his vehicle and hit the tree and lost his life at the age of 18. And I go up to the tree and I'm like, Bill, man, I, I don't know why I'm here. I, I, I need a sign telling me that I'm not alone, that there's something else out there. Because to be completely honest, I had lost faith that there was a higher power because to me, if there was a higher power of God, then why am I suffering so bad? If he loves me so much, then why would he allow me to suffer this bad? Because I truly didn't believe there was something else out there. Yeah. I had no faith. And I said, please just send me a sign that I'm not alone, that there's something else out there. There's something watching over me because I'm lost and I don't know why I'm here. And um, I go to leave the park and I'm, I'm crying so I pull over, but instead of pulling over on the right-hand side of the road where traffic is going out, I, I pull over on the left-hand side of the road facing oncoming traffic. Don't know why. I just pulled over to the left. And I sit there for about 10 minutes. I'm crying. And this car pulls up, and, and we're, we're hood to hood because he's parking on the right side of where he's coming in. <laughs> and um, I see this gentleman get out of his vehicle, and he opens the back door, and he pulls his dog out of the back. He's about to go walk over where the water is, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, man, that guy looks familiar. Like, I know him, and all of a sudden, it hit me. Holy shit. It's my best friend who died in 1996. It was his father. Oh, I hadn't yeah. seen him in 21 years. Today, is it was March 16, 2017, 21 years after his uh, funeral, and I get out. And I, and I say, Mr. Bill, is that you? And he looks at me, he says, Timmy, is that you? And I said, yeah. He said, what's wrong? And, and I fall to the curb and I'm crying. I'm like, I'm, I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know my purpose. And he walks over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Timmy, 
I'm not supposed to be here this morning. I'm supposed to be in South Carolina on a family reunion trip. I was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. this morning. My, my bags are packed in my truck. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come here this morning at 10 a.m. to walk the dog. I believe I was here to see you. No shit. And I said, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him for a sign that I wasn't alone, that there was something else out there. And we hugged and we talked for 10 minutes. And he, and he hugs me and he says, everything's going to be okay, Timmy. Billy's watching over out on you. And I get in my truck and I'm driving out of the park. And for about 10 minutes, I have this feeling of, you know, everything's going to be okay, man. You know, I'm being watched out over. You know, I'm going to be all right. Somebody's protecting me. And just like that, my mental illness and my addiction steps in and says, you're right. You're being protected. Everything's going to be okay. So you don't have to stop doing what you're doing because something's watching out over you. Uh, Everything's going to be all right. So for the next four years, from 2017 to March 5th, 2021, I drank the most alcohol I have ever drank. And, um, you know, for me, I was missing something. I, I didn't have my pain pills anymore. And, and the, the beer wasn't doing it for me. You know, the, the regular... Mm -hmm. Miller and, and Bud and all that. So I, I switched to the loggers, the IPAs, the 10%, the 11% beers. I was still drinking 12 to 18 of them, which is double uh, of a normal Bud Light or Miller Light. Right. And um, I was like, man, I'm still missing something. Let me pick up some of these Fireball Whiskey Miniatures. Yeah. Maybe uh, that will do a little something for me. So I started off with just picking up like four or five of them. And as soon as I took two or three of them, I got that that warm blanket yeah. feeling that the pain medicine used to give me. Yeah. And I said, oh, shit. Okay, that's what I'm missing. I like these. So the beer slowly started to go away, and the whiskey just started to come ahead. So I would buy the miniatures. Mm. I, mean, I could drink them, throw them out my window in my truck while I'm driving, or I could hide them in my sock drawer or in the medicine cabinet or in the basement so the wife didn't see exactly how much I was drinking. So it, it led to me getting up at 7 a.m. in the morning and going right to the liquor store. And I would pick up a sleeve of Fireball Whiskey, which is 10 miniatures. Mm -hmm. And I would drink all 10 of those by 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I'd finish my shift at work at 3.30. I'd go directly to the liquor store and pick up 10 more miniatures. I would drink all 10 of them by 8, 8.30. And if I was feeling up to it, I'd get in my vehicle again and go right to the liquor store and get up 10 more. And usually drink five to 10 of those and pass out by 930 in the, at night, get up at 530 the next day and do it all over again. Yeah. And, um, you know, one thing to, it told me, I, I was wondering how much alcohol I was actually drinking. So I took one of those miniatures one day and I poured it in a shot glass. One fireball miniature is two and a half shots. Uh, so I was drinking upwards of 65 to 80 shots of fireball whiskey yeah. every single day yeah. for over a year and a half. Wow. Um, it got to the point where um, I, I just picked up a brand new truck and I'm driving to the liquor store to get my whiskey. I'm driving home and I hit something. I still to this day have no idea what I hit. I don't know if it was a parked car, a street sign, a, a wall barrier. I have no idea. But I remember coming in shutting the door and telling my wife, I just hit something. I'm not dealing with it. I'm going to bed. And I go in the room and I pass out. And I wake up the next morning like a good alcoholic. Good morning. How are you? How was your, how was your night? I'm going to go to the store and get some milk and water. Do you guys need anything from the grocery store? 
And she looks at me and she's like, how are you going to do that? I'm like, in my brand new truck in the driveway. She's like, Tim, go outside and look at your truck. And I go outside and my right passenger mirror is completely missing off the truck. And my right front passenger tire is up underneath my, my front of my bumper. I had oh, no wow. idea how I drove it home. Wow. And, and I'm sitting there looking at it. I mean, the liquor store is only a block away, but um, I'm looking at it and my wife pops her head out the front door and she's like, you have no idea what you hit last night, do you? I said, no. She said, Tim, you could have killed yourself. You could have killed somebody else. You can't stay here anymore. I, I don't want you around the kids. You, you got to pack your bags and leave and go figure this out. But I don't want you here anymore. So I called AAA. They came over. They put a new tire on my, put a new rim and tire on for me. I packed my bags and I called my buddy. I said, hey, man, uh, you know, can I come to your house for a couple of days? You know, let things blow over, you know, because in like four or five days, you'll still forget about all this and let me back in the house. Yeah. And he's like, sure, buddy, come on over. You can hang out here and spend the night here for a couple of days. So I get to his house and he's like, well, your wife just kicked you out, man. We, we might as well go to the bar, man, because, you know, that's pretty shitty. You got no, you can't go home with your kids and your wife. And I'm like, you know what? That's exactly it. Because, you know, now I got yeah. a real reason to go to the bar and drink. You know, yeah. I was justifying. Absolutely. Let's go to the bar. So we go to the bar. I get completely shit-faced. And this is less than 12 hours later of me hitting something. I leave the bar with my friend, and I rear-end somebody at a red light. And I get out, and I look at the guy. Now, thank God he had a tow hitch on the back of his truck. His truck wasn't touched. But the whole front of my bumper is now freaking V'd in. And, yeah. and I'm sitting there looking at him. I'm like, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm like, well, your truck's okay. You're okay. I'm out of here, man. I get to my buddy's house, and I'm like, man, I... I can't stay here. I got to go just be by myself. I'm going to go sleep in my truck and just think about what a big piece of shit I am. And um, he's like, okay, man. So I, I leave his house, stop at the liquor store. I get 10 more miniatures. And I go and I sit at a park and ride where people park their cars for the day and catch a train or a bus and go to work for the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I turn my phone off. I didn't want to hear from nobody. I didn't want to talk to nobody. I basically wanted to sit in my truck and do the whole woe is me. I'm worthless. My family's better off without me. My kids deserve a better father. My wife deserves a better husband. My my parents deserve a better son. You know, and thank God I was never physically abusive to my family. Yeah. But I sure shit was verbally abusive. I said the meanest, nastiest things to the people I love the most. You can't take that back. And um, I turned my phone off and listened to sad ass music for two days. Drink and pass out and drink and pass out. And just did a whole a whole pity party. Finally, at the end of two days, I turned my phone on. It's 7 after 10 in the morning, March 5th, 2021. And two minutes later, the phone rings. And this is two days after having it off. And I look down, and it says Westchester, Pennsylvania. And the first thing I think of is, who the hell is this? I don't know anybody in Pennsylvania. But I pick it up, and it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. And he's like, lodging. What the fuck are you doing? And I said, I'm cold, I'm drunk, I'm hungry, and I'm tired. And he says, good motherfucker, that's what you need. He said, I just got off the phone with your wife and your mother. I have a plane ticket set for you this evening. I got you into Banyan Treatment Centers down in West Palm Beach, Florida. You're going to get on that plane and you're going to go get your life back. Just promise me one thing. Call me after you pass security because I want to make sure your ass is getting on the plane and you're not going to catch a cab and leave. I'm like, okay, okay. So uh, I go home. My wife calls me. She's like, hey, I just got the phone with Brandon. 
can you please come home and pack your bags and try to eat something, maybe take a nap, you know, because you got to have that three, four hours for the plane left. Yeah. I'm like, okay. So I go home, take a shower, pack my bags. I couldn't eat and I couldn't take a nap. I have so much anxiety. I'm having a panic attack. I'm, I'm like, how long am I going for? 30 days, 60 days, six months? I don't know what the hell is going on. And, and I'm, I'm just sitting there going through all the years of all the shit that I did, the, the vehicles I've wrecked, the jobs I've lost, you know, the fights I've caused with my family, the disappointments. And I'm sitting on the edge of my bed and I'm like, I can't do it. I, I, I can't, I can't go. And uh, my addiction grabs my hand. And it walks me to the basement of my home. And I throw a rope around my neck mm. and I stand up on a bucket. And, uh, about a minute goes by and my wife realizes I'm not in the bedroom anymore. She comes down the steps looking for me and she sees me in the corner of the basement with a rope around my neck, standing on a bucket, hysterically crying. And uh, she says, what are you doing? I said, I can't do it. I just want the pain to stop. I don't know how. And she looks at me and she says, Tim, do you know what this would do to your little girls? please, please get down and get on that plane and everything is going to be okay. I sat there for about 30 seconds and then uh, I took the rope from my neck and I fell to the floor and I cried for about 10 minutes. And I go upstairs and I call my buddy. I'm like, hey, Brandon, I'm, uh, I got to get on that plane, man. If I don't get on that plane, this disease is going to kill me and, and I, can't, I can't do that to my girls. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security. You're about to get back everything that you've lost times 10. And he just simply hangs up. As I go to sit down in that seat, waiting for them to call me to board the plane. As I sit down in that seat at the airport, I get this overwhelming feeling of hope that engulfs my entire body. It was the exact warm blanket feeling that drugs and alcohol have given me throughout my entire life. Mm. Except this time. All my panic, my worry, my doubt, my fear, my anxiety, all left my body. It was a calming, warm feeling that I've never felt in my entire life. And at that exact moment, I hear this woman's voice in my head. And she simply says, everything is going to be okay. It was the most amazing experience I've ever had in my entire life. I truly believe I had a spiritual awakening and, 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 a, and a spiritual moment in that airport. I got to rehab and I went addictive mode into rehab. Um, I didn't miss any meetings. I volunteered. I went to extra meetings for first responders and military veterans. I shared. I, I helped other people there. I started working out with a personal trainer Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. I changed my complete diet and I found faith. Um, I'm not going to necessarily say God or Jesus, but I, I started to believe in the higher power because, you know, when I, when I got to rehab and it, and it took all my vitals and it took all my blood and did everything. They called me in two days later and they're like, hey, um, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm 46. I'm 44. And, and he's like, your liver and kidneys are four times what they should be. Your, your blood pressure is 167 over 145. You're on the wow. verge of having a stroke. He's like, if you would have waited one more month to come here and have help. Your, your liver and kidneys would be irreversible. 
He's like, and even if you would have stopped drinking, you probably would not have made it to the age of 40, 48. You would have died from alcoholism because yeah. your body, your body would have been um, irreversible and the damage would have been done. You came at the exact time you needed to save your life. And when he said that, and then I thought about what happened to me at the airport. I thought about the two days, my no phone on and my friend just happened to call me. I stopped believing in coincidences. Yeah. And I started to believe that this happened for a reason. And it happened at the exact moment I needed to save my life. And um, I, when I first got sober, I, was, I, would, I would say, why did I have to go through 27 years of mental illness and addiction and alcoholism before I got the help I needed? But the more I got sober, the more I read on my mental illness, the more I read about recovery and sobriety, the more I worked the steps, the more I started living the steps in my daily life, the more I started having faith. I finally realized that those 27 years didn't happen to me. They happened for me. They happened for me to realize how special this gift of life is that we have. They happened for me so I can be grateful for each and every day alive. I took everything for granted, my family, my friends, my life. I was always that glass half full. Where's the rest of my drink? Where's the ice cubes? Why isn't it spilling out over the top? Yeah. Now, I am just so thankful that there's something in that cup to quench my thirst. I'm thankful that I get to wake up each and every day. You know, I just, it's, it's funny how my perspective changed and I look at things differently and I hear my friends complain, man, I got to get up for work tomorrow. Then I got to go to the gym and then I got to go home and cook dinner and, and I got to cut the grass. And I, and I just say to them, you know, change that one word I got to, to, I get to, I get to. And, yeah. And they're like, what do you mean? You get to go to work, to pay the bills, to keep the lights on, to put food on the table for your family. You get to go to the gym. Some people are not physically able to go to the gym and work out. You know, you you get to have another day with your family in a house that you pay for. And you get to cut the grass on, on something that is yours. Be grateful for everything that's in your life. You know, and alcohol and drugs promised and took everything from me. And I'm coming for everything they promised and took from me. I'm coming for it all. And I'm not going to stop. Speaking with you tonight, this is my 67th podcast awesome. episode as, as a guest and, and sharing my story. Um, you know, even if I help only one person tells me that I'm, uh, this is what I need to do. I just hope that, you know, you're not alone, that your pain, we, we know the pain that you're going through. I've been there personally yeah, me too. and it's a scary, scary, dark place to be in. And you really do feel alone at that time. And, and for me, I felt ashamed. I felt embarrassed. I didn't want to burden any bra anybody with my problems. And I, and I think that's what happens to a lot of people. They, they seclude themselves. They don't tell anybody what's going on. And as you know, it just compounds and compounds and compounds. And it gets so big and overwhelming that for me, my only solution was I just don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to deal with it. I just want the pain to stop. And I just want to tell people that, you know, please don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Reach out. There's help out there with the internet. Now we can, you can find so many things and people and places to help you. And I need people to know that, you know, we have your back. We're here to help. 
reach out if you're feeling desperate or suicidal. If you know a family member that's struggling with mental illness or addiction, please reach out and get them help. I promise you, I promise you, your life can change and you can ultimately live the life that your higher power has always had waiting for you. Today, I have 19 months clean and sober after 27 years. And I didn't think I could go one day. And here I'm sitting 19 months. It's uh 19 it's a months to the day. Yeah, 19. Was the fifth yeah, of, today's the yeah. fifth. Yeah. That's right. That's... It's a miracle. I'm sitting here talking to you. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful That's... for you having this podcast and I can share my story. Wow, man. Well, I'm grateful that you would, you know, continue. Wow, 67 is fantastic. Like that you've done it that many times and that you, because um, I know from telling my own story after a while, it can get exhausting, but you've just told it like it's the first time. And so you've got a great gift that you're, you're giving and it's very clear. I, it spoke to me too, because I've just kind of struggled with the higher power stuff. You know, I'm a former army chaplain and uh, somebody who has just been through a lot of faith related shit that, um, you know, I guess I should, shouldn't say necessarily faith. Well, it's faith and religion and all those things that get intertwined. And, you know, so uh, I am, personally encouraged if you know i can tell you right now you've already helped one uh because it's me and i needed i needed to know that there aren't any um coincidences i've been sitting here tonight before we got on writing down you know like job ideas because i i've been through about a dozen jobs in the last five or seven years whatever however you want to count them since i left active duty and then the national guard and you know i'm just writing down my dream my job ideas and then i said i said screw that i'm gonna write down my dreams too and i, I wrote down something about my one year goal being to like, you know, reestablish uh, the, the income that I had before. And then I, and I kind of said, fuck that. And I like cross it out and I wrote scale the podcast because that's my dream. And this is what I love doing. I love doing this more than I love doing anything else other than being with my wife and our boys. And so, um, you know, I really, have, uh, I came down here to get this, this dog, this dog behind me. And, uh, it's, I, I walked around today with a sense of like, there's been so little chatter in my head that I, I don't know what it, the walk that we took right before this call, like after dinner, before I got on with you. And, um, just, I was thinking like, man, I started to have this sense that like, okay, man, this is going to be all right. Cause I just am stressing like, you know, the, the things that we all stress about the money and the what ifs and the, what, and the, what do people think and what, all these things that run through our heads. And so to wrap all that big, long rambling mess of a, whatever that was to, just to say, thank you uh, for me. And the thing that I would ask you, cause you answered like every question I had, <laughs> so, <laughs> like, like it was brilliant. Like, Oh my God, of all that, like, this was like the easiest interview ever. Cause I was like, Hey, tell me your story. And then it was like, Oh shit. Well, there it is. Like, I don't, I don't know what else to be added. What could be added to that other than, um, do you want to talk about love and light to the world a little bit? And cause I read the founder, you know, um, her kind of her story and everything. And that's obviously the name you're using here on the, on the zoom call as your username. So maybe tell me about what that organization's about and how you partner with them. And it sounds like you do some work with other nonprofits as well. Yes. Yeah, so um, love and light in the world was founded by Sandra Lee and Dusty Simmers. And um, what it is, it's a nonprofit organization that brings mental, uh, health awareness and addiction awareness, um, suicide prevention to the world. Um, they're both former addicts. They both are clean now. And it's a, it's a free program. And we, we, sh we share hope to everybody and anybody that needs it. Um, we try to help them, um, you know, get into any type of rehabs or counseling. 
And uh, we actually run Monday through Sunday. We have free peer support groups on Zoom. Um, I run the men's health and addiction program on Thursday nights, 7 p.m. Eastern on Zoom. It's free and open to the public. Wow. You go to loveandlighttotheworld.org um, and you just simply tap on peer support. And you go to Thursday where it says my name. You click my name. And you just put in your name and that you want to attend. And then at seven o'clock on Thursday, you go to the Zoom and we hold a meeting. And it's it's open to people to share. And if uh, if if somebody is on there and they're having suicidal thoughts, we wait until the end of the uh, of the Zoom call. And then I personally will go on and speak to them. You know, not in front of everybody. And yeah. I try to do what I can to get them the help that they need. And it's a great program. And um, I actually just got back from California two weeks ago. Um, I became an ambassador to the Overwatch Collective, which is ran by two former Marines. Um, they're both in the Coast Guard now, and one is an active police officer in California. And they started that because of the trauma that our first responders and military veterans go through. And the suicide rate is is out of out of this world yeah. it's not 22 a day it's it, i think it's double that i really yeah. do yeah. um so they they started this nonprofit to help guys and, and women get into programs um and also their spouses that have dealt with the trauma because of their their loved ones in those fields and um they asked me they flew me out there last week to, to speak at, at their fundraiser and I, I was able to go and share a little bit of my story we raised sixty five thousand nine hundred and I think fifty three dollars wow. to uh, to help uh, veterans and first responders and their spouses get the help they need. And that's something that's dear to my heart because our, our veterans and first responders, um, we see things that normal people do not see. Yeah. And um, a lot of it is death and, and, and tragic incidences that happen. And um, the old time of suck it up buttercup. I believe, you know, my father's generation where you don't show your feelings, you just you suck it up, be a you know, man up, you know, yeah. just don't, don't think about it. It's not good, man. Um, we need to share and, and we need to get our feelings out. Um, and the more I've shared, the more I've helped, the better I have felt. I know I'm helping people, but man, it, this is like therapy for me. I'm, I'm helping myself every time I speak. Um, and I'm not forgetting my past. And I think that's important. I, I don't want to forget where I came from. If I forget where I came from, I'll, I'll go right back to where I was. And I, and I don't want that. So helping this, these two foundations and being active in recovery and, and mental illness, um, it, it, I, I found my purpose, man. Mm -hmm. I, I have found my purpose in life. I now know that this is why I went through those 27 years. So I can authentically and genuinely speak from experience huh. and be able to help those who need to hear it. If I wouldn't have gone through that, how could I sit here and tell you, you need to get help or you can do this, you right. can do that. So it's awesome. Uh, I, I think it's a actually great segue into that final question that I have for you, which is, you know, this is a show for newly sober people who are learning to love ourselves instead of booze. And so as a, uh, you're, not as newly sober as me, but we're still, you know, early and still spring. baby, still babies. <laughs> and I think, I think you're more of it. You're past the toddler. I might be in toddler phase, maybe, 
maybe, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. I, it's, I feel like I'm starting to get my feet under me, but you know, it can be a dangerous place too, because then you get more mobility and <laughs> yeah, get yeah. Into more trouble. Right. But uh, one day at a time and I'll for sure. But what do you, what do you do in your early sobriety here to show love to yourself? What's something that you would share with the audience uh, here for this show that it's not all newly sober people that listen to this show, but uh, right. I know a great deal of the people that I talk to, are kind of in the same phase that we are and within a couple, the first couple of years. So what would you say to, to me and to the others who are walking this path with you? How do you show love to yourself? Three different things, mentally, spiritually, and physically. Um, I'll go through physically first because it's the easiest. I go to the gym six days a week. And um, I actually uh, did a, a competition in May for Muscle Fitness Magazine. It was open to 10,000 people, and I came in third place. Wow. Um, I was supposed to do a bodybuilding show in November, but it just got postponed. So it just gives me a couple more months to do another one because I've always wanted to do it. But drugs and alcohol has always gotten away. Yeah. So going to the gym every day um, and eating healthy has given me um, more self-confidence, more self-love. Um, it's an accomplishment that I, I know, even if I've had a bad day at work or, but you know, that life still happens on life's terms. Shit's still going to happen. You're still going to lose jobs. People are still going to die. Things are still going to happen in life. Yeah. Um, but for me, going to the gym every day really does help me. It keeps me balanced. It lets out my aggression. Um, it calms me down. Um, mentally, I've learned to let things go. Um, I don't hold on to things as much as I used to do. You know, I, I let things go. I let it lay where they are. And I have forgiven myself for a lot of things. I'm not going to say everything because I'm still working. I think that's a, a, a long-term thing that, that you, over time, you'll forgive yourself for yeah. the things that you've put yourself through and your family through. But I have learned to forgive myself of a lot of things because I knew and I know now that that really wasn't me. It was the drugs and the alcohol. Um, I love myself, finally. I'd have to go back to my childhood to say that I've actually loved myself. And in my 20s and 30s and, and, hit, and the beginning of my 40s were all blur. And they were all alcohol-induced. And um, I hated myself looking in the mirror. I hated the person looking back. And I can truly say the person that I look at now looks back at me. I love that person. I know... I'm doing something purposeful with my life. And then that gives myself self-love. And spiritually, I have to have faith that there's something else out there. You know, um, step one, I came to believe, uh, came to believe a higher power can bring me back to sanity. Um, I didn't do it on my own. And the things that have happened to me over this past 19 months, it didn't come from me. It has come from someplace else, come from someone else. I know that there is something else out there watching over all of us. Um, without faith, I think you're, you're, you're really lost in this world. If you believe there's nothing else other than this, that, that's a hard road to live. So yeah. I truly believe that this is only a phase of our life, or in our life. And after we all do pass away, when the time does come, I believe we've moved on to something bigger and better. And I don't want to regret wasting my life anymore. I wasted 27 years of it. And I want to look back on my life knowing that I've made a difference, 
that I've helped people. I've loved again. And um, I've had empathy, not sympathy, empathy, because I've been there and I know what they've gone through. And um, I pray every night. I pray in the morning when I, when I wake up and, and, and before I start my day, which I think would help a lot of people, I say five things that I'm grateful for before I walk out the door in the morning. It could be as simple as I'm grateful for my two dogs. I'm grateful that the lights are on, but I say five things that I'm grateful for. And if I go through the day and things aren't working out at work or the wife calls me because she's having a bad day or something, or the kids do something stupid because kids do some things stupid sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll say my gratitude list again and it will ground me and it'll bring me back that, you know, this is just life and this and things happen in life and um, it helps me to deal with them better. It helps me keep me calm. I've always been a, a very violent and aggressive um, and very zero to hundred miles an hour like that. Yeah. And now I, I tend to allow things to marinate and, and I, uh, I deal with them as they come in a more calm manner. And it has made my whole life, everything calm. My wife will tell you, she has to pull teeth for me even to raise my voice anymore. Yeah. And, um, she loves coming home because the house is peaceful. And, and there, there's tranquility in the home and the kids laugh and play and we watch movies together and, and there's no anxiety in the home anymore. And, and I, I truly owe that to my higher power. Um, I couldn't have done that without thinking and believing that this has all happened for a reason. And um, this is, this is his plan and I'm, I'm going with it. I'm running with it. Well, it's uh, been such a, Great pleasure to spend this hour with you, man. Like, wow, this is, I, I needed this and uh, I can't wait to get this out. Like, I, I can't wait to publish this episode. I'm so excited. Um, uh, it's been good for me as a son of a Marine who, you know, my dad died when I was 19 and, and I wish that I could have heard more of his war stories before he died because I feel like now that I've gone kind of gone through my own seeing shit overseas, you know, that people shouldn't see. And uh, that I, I don't know, there's part of me that wants all Americans to have to go see it firsthand but then there's part of me that's like i don't want it to i don't want it to fuck him up uh but you know just so we just so we appreciate what we have and i wish i could have talked to my 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 dad i got a picture of him and me him training me how to ride ride my bike when i was like five or six on my desk here that i brought with me on the trip to remind me that like you know he's still with me and uh still watching over me and uh absolutely I i don't talk to him enough and so that was a good reminder too from that part of your story about um you know that that we do have that overwatch from from people that uh, that care about us that maybe not are not here physically anymore. But Tim Lodgen, thank you, sir. Again, I just want to say thank you for having me and thank you for having um, this this platform for me to share that we can reach people. I, I love what you're doing. Keep so, doing it, brother. Thanks so much for joining us on this first episode of season three. Spruce and I send you our best silver vibes by saying goodbye alcohol and hello life. And hey, if you're a big fan of the I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye podcast and you'd like to be one of the OG subscribers to the premium service where you get six perks for just $6 a month, then check out the link in the show notes. And just know that regardless, we love you. And we're so honored to call you brothers and sisters in our sober family. So take care of yourselves. Look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Much love and peace.